Good, good morning, everybody. My name is Shelton Woods. I'm part of the community here and, and, and glad to be with you. You know, there, there are a lot of humorous stories and serious stories about debacles that take place because of a misunderstanding or a mistranslation of a word. And so I'm going to say uh, throughout the sermon here, there's, there's actually only two things that I really want you to remember from today's sermon, and I'll start out by saying, here's the first thing I really want you to remember. It's possible, if not probable, that there are two words in the New Testament that have been mistranslated or misunderstood, and this has caused the most serious damage to the Roman Catholic Church and to the Protestant Church, to our church. Both of those words are in our text today from Mark chapter 1, verses 14 and 15. Because of the seriousness of this, on behalf of the Lord Jesus Christ, I ask for your attention in these next few minutes. Mark chapter 1, verses 14 and 15. This is Jesus' first sermon from Mark. Now, after his cousin John was arrested... Jesus came into Galilee proclaiming the gospel of God and saying, The time is fulfilled, and the kingdom of God is at hand. Repent and believe in the gospel. Brothers and sisters, this is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Let us pray. Our God and Heavenly Father, we come before you with boldness despite us uh, knowing that We could have been created worms, but you have made us in your image and crowned us with glory and honor. And yet we come as broken people, full of grief and heartaches, not understanding our world or ourselves often. And so we pray that it would be your Holy Spirit that would make things clear in these next few minutes because... We want to lift up Jesus Christ, through whose name we pray. Amen. Today we're remembering the Reformation, and it was a historic change in the Christian church. And it was also started because of a gigantic misunderstanding or mistranslation of just one word in the Gospels. Here's the Cliff Notes version of how that mistranslation came to light. The beginning of the 1300s in Florence, Italy, there was some, a new movement, a historic movement called the Renaissance, which means a rebirth. And, and what, what was reborn? Well, there was this idea by the 1300s by the scholars throughout Europe that what had happened over the last 900 years, from 400 to 1300, was a very, very dark period in the church. In fact, it starts to be called pejoratively the medieval period or the dark ages. And the thesis of these scholars is what had bound the West into darkness was actually the use of Latin in translating from the earlier Greek manuscripts, particularly with regards to the work of Aristotle. And so the main stagnation in the West was because we were reading Latin 
rather than going back to the original language of Greek. And so they wanted to move back and understand these original manuscripts to see if there were any mistranslations. Well, the church was also wedded to Latin. In fact, the official and exclusive Bible of the Roman Catholic Church was what was called the Latin Vulgate. And that was created just before the year 400, mostly by a man named Jerome, who translated the Greek Gospels, the original language, into Latin. And the church said that this is what we are going to use exclusively. But the New Testament scholars started to get on board with the Renaissance, and they started to say, well, let's go back and look at the Greek New Testament to see if Jerome and the others faithfully translated the Greek into Latin because, of course, they have other manuscripts that they can compare. So when uh, Jesus used a particular word or Paul used a particular word, they could go back to the first century and they could say, how was that word used in, in the letters or in the official documents? Did we translate this properly? And of course, Desiderius Erasmus creates this great, by going back to the manuscripts, a Greek New Testament. And what Erasmus and Luther, among others, find out is that a very cornerstone of the Roman Catholic doctrines was based on a mistranslation of one word. That Greek word is metanoia. In English, metanoia is translated repent. And when they look at how metanoia was used in the Roman official documents and in uh, the, the other types of writings, metanoia always, most always meant this, to turn around, to change one's heart, to change one's mind. Uh, it was at times a military term to do an about face. But when Jerome translated metanoia, he translated it in Latin to penance. And that Latin phrase meant to make amends or to pay back a debt. And penance becomes one of the seven sacraments of the Roman Catholic Church. And... uh, And then it becomes abused, of course, in the days of Luther because of Tetzel and others where you can do penance by buying a piece of paper. It's kind of like a get-out-of-purgatory passport out of that. And so Luther, looking at this, says, this is wrong. You're taking money from people. And, of course, what they start to say is it doesn't really matter how you live for six days out of the week. You can come to church on Sunday, do a little bit of penance, find out how many Hail Marys and Our Fathers we have to say, and then everything will be copacetic. Everything will be okay. And so we should not be surprised that when Martin Luther said, I want to have a conversation with the doctors of the church, he was also a doctor of the church, I want to have a dispute or at least a conversation over some things. His number one thesis out of 95, which was written in Latin, was this. And you can find it in your bulletin. 
when our Lord and Master Jesus Christ said, Repent, metanoia, he willed the entire life of believers to be one of repentance. And number two is right on the heel of that. The word repentance, this is number two thesis, cannot be understood as referring to the sacrament of penance, that is, confession and satisfaction as administered by the clergy. Let's have a conversation about the mistranslation of this word. But my thesis is that I believe that there is the same confusion over another word in our text that has caused the greatest problems in the Protestant church, in particular the American Protestant church. And that word is actually used twice in these verses. Now after John was arrested, Jesus came into Galilee proclaiming the gospel of God. And this is what he said, the time is fulfilled The kingdom of God is at hand. Repent and believe the gospel. Most Americans, most American Christians, when you ask them what the gospel is, this is what they'll say. Well, the gospel is that God sent his only son into this world, and he lived a perfect life, and he went to the cross, and he died, and he bore our sins, And he went into the grave, and he came out the third day, and he ascended to heaven. And if you believe in him and ask him to come into your heart, he will forgive your sins. And when you die, you get to go to heaven. That's what the gospel is. That is not what Jesus meant by the gospel. That is hardly ever what Jesus meant by the gospel. While all of what I just said is true, these are truths. That's not what Jesus meant when he used this word euangelion. Read the Gospels. You will find that when Jesus talks about the Gospel, he's not referring to John 3.16. He's not referring to for God so loved the world. He uses the word Gospel in a way that the people of the first century could understand what that word euangelion or good news understood it. And how did the first century people understand this word? Well, you got to go back to 44 B.C., when Julius Caesar was assassinated. He was assassinated, and then the Roman Empire is about to break apart. You've got uh, Mark Antony, uh, Brutus, Cassius. uh, uh, You've got Octavius, Cleopatra, and they are all vying to see who's going to come out out on top, and Octavius comes out on top, about 33 B.C., And he changes his name. He gives himself the name of God, and he gives himself the name Augustus Caesar. And then letters are sent out throughout the Roman Empire after Octavius, Augustus Caesar, comes and is the dominant power, is the emperor. And I actually have in your bulletin a translation of this letter that went out from the Roman Empire in 31 B.C., The beginning of the word of glad tidings, the word there is gospel. The beginning of the gospel that have come to all men through the coming of God to rescue the world. Repent and believe. That's 31 years before Christ that this goes out. This is what the gospel 
was that was sent out to the Roman Empire. In short, the gospel message was that Augusta, Augustus Caesar is ushering in a new kingdom. And his enemies had a choice. They could repent and believe in Augustus Caesar as God, or they could die by the sword. And this is Jesus' meaning when he says gospel. The time has come. It's come. A kingdom has arrived. Uh, that, that Greek word can be the kingdom is now available to all. Believe this good news. I also have quotes from a couple of solid teachers of the New Testament and who write about Jesus' life. They help us understand this. This is from Daryl Bach. If we ask what message Jesus brought or the gospel, the short answer is simply this. He brought good news that God's promised rule of deliverance had arrived. John Ortberg says this. Jesus' gospel is simply this. The kingdom of God has now through him become available for ordinary beings to live in. When Jesus said the gospel, he was using a political term, not a religious term. A new kingdom is here, and the invitation is to come into this kingdom. Did you know that the word kingdom is used 122 times in the four gospels? Jesus uses it 90 times. So you would say, thanks for that history lesson. What's the difference between what Jesus meant when he said the gospel and what we mean when we say the gospel? Is there really any difference? Isn't it that Jesus came and died for our sins and if we say our prayers to him, he'll forgive our sins and we can be his children and go to heaven? Is that very different than what he really meant when he said the gospel? There is enormous difference. I said I wanted you to remember two things Here's the second thing. It's our misunderstanding of what Jesus meant when he used the word gospel that is at the root of our spiritual coldness and rot and at the root of the weakness of the church in our day. Here are a couple of examples to flesh this out for us. Let's say that you have a dream house and I don't know what it could be some of you may be living in your dream house right now but let's say you go to a a house and it's just gorgeous maybe it's 50,000 square feet maybe it's 5,000 square feet maybe it's a mid-century modern home maybe it's a castle maybe it's a very small home but in the back of the house perhaps of the small house there's this incredible beautiful garden And you go up to your dream house. I won't ask anybody to raise your hands because I know some hands would go up because you're living in your dream house. But let's say you go up to that dream house and you go and you open the door and you say, wow, what a beautiful door. This is gorgeous. Look at the carving. And is this mahogany? This is just breathtaking. And the host says, come on in the house, come on in. And you say, no, this is just a beautiful door. Come on in. I can't, I just got to stay here and look at this door. 
throughout my time as an administrator, I've hired scores, if not hundreds of people. It's happened several times, but can you imagine what it's like to hire somebody? And they come to work on Monday. They've just been hired. And they come into work, and, and you introduce them to their colleagues. And they spend the first day saying, I can't believe I got this job. I, I can't believe you hired me. I, I should tell you what, what an amazing thing it is because I flunked out of high school. I didn't want to tell you that in the interview. But I flunked out of high school. And here is this, and I can't believe I have this office with a window. This, and then the second day they come to work and they say, I can't believe I've got this job. And a month goes by and that's all that they're saying. And you want to say, do the job. You've got it. There was a joke that was told about me on the day that I got married. I was standing uh, before an audience like this. And uh, the joke was that uh, somebody forgot to take the hanger out of the tuxedo. <laughs> because I was stiff as a board. But can you imagine what it would be like on the day of getting married that and the evening of our marriage and our honeymoon and now almost for the next 34 years if I would have spent the whole time saying, I can't believe you said I do. I can't believe I'm married. I can't believe you said yes. And if I spent 34 years doing that, my wife would say, yeah, I said yes, let's start our lives. But I think that's what most Christians do. We have so focused on justification that we have forgotten that when Jesus said, I've got good news for you, it was about living in a new kingdom. It was about living a new life. Yes, it's a beautiful, beautiful story and truth that God saves us. But if we just sit there at the door, if we just sit there saying, I can't believe this has happened to me, I can't believe Jesus is almost begging us to say, yes, I saved you. Now live in this kingdom. That was the good news that I brought. The good news is there's this new kingdom that you are to live in. Now, the gospel of a new kingdom sounds very strange to us because in 1776, we decided we didn't want to be under a king anymore, poor King George III. We said, no, we are not going to be in a kingdom anymore. But I know, and Jesus knew, and you know, we're all living in a kingdom. The question is, who's the queen of that kingdom? And who's the king of that kingdom? It's our fundamental misunderstanding of what Jesus meant by the gospel that is at the root of lives, marriages, relationships, commitments to a church that looks hardly different from people who are not Christians. Because all that we really care about oftentimes is I've got a passport to heaven. And Jesus came and said, I didn't come to give you a passport to heaven. I came to give you life that is abundant. I came to give you a new kingdom, a new king. Do you know how radically different we would live if we knew that we were in God's kingdom? 
I might have mentioned this in a sermon earlier, but I had a student who was a uh, Christian, and he, not just a Christian, he was a, the youth leader in his, in his church. And uh, he said, I'm going to go get a Ph.D. in early Christian history. And I said, okay, I know what university you're going to. I know what the professors think about early Christianity there. I said, be very, very careful. He went and he got a Ph.D., came back to the university and said, I know I am now an atheist. I no longer believe. When we probed a little bit further of, well, what happened? He said, well, this is what happened. I woke up one morning and I thought to myself, what would be different if I didn't believe? And he said, I came to the conclusion that nothing really would be different if I didn't believe. What's it like to live in this kingdom? It means that we are radically different. If you want to know what it means to live in this kingdom, read Matthew chapter 5, 6, and 7. Read the Sermon on the Mount. Get Sinclair Ferguson's book on it. Get Martin Lloyd-Jones' book on it. If you want to know what Jesus was talking about, about why I'm so excited about this new kingdom. But I've got just another point I want to say to you here. I think maybe the best way to begin to understand what it means to live in this kingdom is the very first line of Jesus' most famous sermon, the Sermon on the Mount in Matthew chapter 5, where he said this, Blessed or happy are those who are poor in spirit, why? For theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Well, what in the world does that mean? What does it mean to be poor in spirit? It means this. It means I understand I am absolutely beyond helping myself. I make a horrible king. I make a horrible queen. You make a horrible queen. That the kingdom that I built for myself resembles a train wreck. The kingdom that I've built for myself in my marriage resembles a wreck. And you know what? That is exactly the opposite of the values of these United States. Because our values are this. Believe in yourself. Pursue liberty, happiness, and property. Don't let anyone put you down. Trust myself. I'm rich in spirit. I don't need another king or kingdom. And what has that gotten us? A nation divided because we're trying to set up our little kingdoms on the left and the right? You know, there has never been a country ever in human history that is as rich as these United States. There's never been a country more powerful than the United States. Never. We are not a superpower. We are a hyperpower. And there's never been a country in human history that is more addicted to drugs, over-the-counter medicines, self-medication, through all types of drinks and amusements. There's a huge complaint I hear at the university now that I haven't heard ever before. 
I have students come in absolutely complaining that we are not doing enough about mental health issues. It seems like everyone has them now. And he says, why aren't you addressing mental health problems? Now, I am not negating that there are mental health problems. We live in a fallen world. But can't we see that we've got the right diagnosis but the wrong cure? That Jesus and his kingdom doesn't make everything good. But I can't tell you, you've got to just believe in yourself and all your mental problems and your depressions will go and believe in yourself. No, that leads, I know what that leads to. I know what that does in a marriage. I know what that does as a father and as a son and as a brother. And it's not good. There's a pandemic in America. I'm not talking about covid I'm talking about people who say they are suffering from mental health problems, and I believe that it is true. I am not negating that at all. I'm just saying that if we, do, if we have a diagnosis, the, the, the cure is a, is a new kingdom, <laughs> new values, that I'm not at the center of it, that there's forgiveness for all of the things that we've done. One of my favorite New York Times writer is a man named Nicholas Kristof. And this week, he said goodbye to the New York Times after two decades, after being nominated for multiple Pulitzer Prizes. He wrote a great book uh, on China, and it's his dream job. And I would just say, uh, Nicholas Kristof probably did the most fair or the fairest uh, presentation of Christianity that I've ever seen in the New York Times when he had a conversation with Tim Keller. And you can go and watch that or, or listen to it. It was a couple of years ago at a Christmas, Christmas time. Uh, he, he and Keller had this great dialogue, and I think it was a fair assessment of Christianity, which you don't usually get from the New York Times. But he said, you're probably wondering why I'm leaving my dream job that I've had for a couple of decades. And he said, I'm going, I'm leaving because I'm going back to my state to run for governor. Because when I go back to my hometown and see what's going on there, and I see what's happened to my classmates, my high school classmates, I cannot in good conscience stay here in Manhattan living this luxurious life. And he said this. I'm going to quote him in his final op-ed when he said goodbye to his readers. Every two weeks... Every two weeks, we lose more Americans from drugs, alcohol, and suicide than we lost in the 20 years of our wars in Iraq and Afghanistan. Every two weeks, more Americans die by suicide, drug overdose, and alcohol than the 20 years we were fighting in Iraq and Afghanistan. The gospel says that there's a new kingdom where life makes sense because this universe is about a grand narrative of God reconciling us to himself and giving us meaning. What would our relationships look like 
if we didn't think that being a Christian or being in the kingdom of God was like these boxes that we have to check. If you think it's about boxes that you have to check, read the Sermon on the Mount. Because if you're going to check the murder box, the adultery box, I haven't done that, I haven't done that, um, I've loved my neighbors, you'll find that Jesus is after your heart, not after checking boxes. He's after a new life. What would it look like? It would be that we would be servants of each other. It's that husbands would wake up in the morning and say, I get to serve my wife today. It's that wives would wake up and say, I get to serve my husband today. It'd be where we see each other as image bearers of Christ. It would be where we'd be committed to the good of each other, where we are assured of God's love and acceptance. I've been a Christian for some years now, and so I've heard this many times, and if you've been a Christian for a while, you've heard it at least once or twice, and that is, here's the silver bullet. Read this book, listen to this sermon, and you will have the great, victorious Christian life. It never works, at least it's never worked for me. But I wonder if we understand what Jesus meant by saying, I've come and my first sermon is about this kingdom, if it might change us a little bit as Christians. It certainly changed Paul. You read Colossians chapter 1 and you'll see he has transferred us from the domain of darkness. Where did he transfer us from? Into the kingdom of his beloved son in whom we have redemption, the forgiveness of sins. We've been transferred from the domain of this cruel world into a new kingdom, not a thousand years from now, right now. It changed Paul. He couldn't stop talking about this new kingdom. Does it fix everything? No, we have to deal with our mistakes still. The hassles, the flat tires, the need for liver transplants, the cancer that takes the loved one's that we have. We don't stop suffering, but we learn how to cope with this suffering in this new kingdom because of who our king is. I want to close by saying this. Do you know why Jesus was so excited about this gospel of a new kingdom? It's because he knew who the king was of this new kingdom. He knew that this king was gentle and lowly, that he was a good shepherd, that he was before all things and in him all things hold together. Because he knew that this king wouldn't love you to the moon and back, he would love you from eternity and back. He knew what joy there was to turn away from ourselves, to live an abundant life where we have forgiveness and our life reflects his life where we love Others and we, our life is a service to others because of what he has done for us. And finally, he knew that for those in this new kingdom, that one day we would see him face to face and he would be able to say to us, well done, good and faithful servant. Enter into the joy of your king. Let us pray. Our God, 
And Heavenly Father, we think of Jesus as a baby in Bethlehem. And that is true. But when we see him in Revelation, we see that there is a name written on his thigh that says King of Kings and Lord of Lords. The values of this kingdom are upside down. It is those that mourn who find comfort. It is those who are poor in spirit who have the kingdom. These words, Father, need to be taken by your Holy Spirit and then applied to our hearts. And we know that you can do it because you've done it for thousands of years to people like John Newton, Johnny Erickson, Martin Luther. We thank you for this and we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.